0: All right, if you have a Bible, turn me to John uh, chapter 5. We are continuing in our series called The Bread of Life, which is uh, an expositional uh, look through uh, John's gospel. Uh, right in the heart of downtown Honolulu is a, is a little restaurant. It's kind of a greasy spoon restaurant that, that seems a lot like Waffle House, but it isn't. It's actually something different. I've never been there, but this is what's told of me. to me. Um, Pastor Tony was a longtime pastor, a Baptist pastor, and he was there in Honolulu. And he had just touched down after a long flight and he found that he couldn't sleep. And so he decided to get up and walk the city. He's walking around uh, downtown. Uh, it's three o'clock in the morning. He's looking for something to eat. And he discovers this restaurant that I just mentioned to you. So he goes in the restaurant and he notices there's kind of grease everywhere. The menu's got film on it. There's grease on the table. So he decides he's just, he's just gonna have a, a cup of coffee and a donut. Well, there's a a guy working behind the counter, he later discovered his name was Harry, and he says to you, what can I get for you? And Pastor Tony says, let me just get a a cup of coffee, please. So he's sitting there, kind of quietly waiting uh, for his coffee, and as soon as he gets his coffee, into the restaurant walk eight prostitutes. They come in. It's a small restaurant, so they kind of, they're sitting in close proximity. One's on Tony's right hand and one's on Tony's left hand. They start talking back and forth to each other, loudly and somewhat crudely. Tony's trying not to listen, but he can't help it. They're talking right in front of his face. And one of the prostitutes, the one on his right, says to the one on his left, you know, tomorrow's my birthday, turning 39. The lady to which she made this comment says, well, why are you telling me? What do you want me to do about it? you want me to throw you a party, bake you a cake? And the lady said, no, I'm just telling you because it's my birthday. I don't expect you to do anything. I've never had a birthday party. I don't expect that I should get one now. So they continue to talk for a little bit, and they all get up and leave this restaurant. Pastor Tony says to the guy behind the counter, hey, have you seen these ladies before? He said, oh, they're in here every night. They come in every single day or morning at 3 a.m. and talk. And so that kind of sparks a thought in, in Pastor Tony's mind. He says, you know, the one of them on my right, have you ever seen her before? And, and the guy said, yeah, that's, that's Agnes. As I said, she's in here every night. He said, you know, she mentioned that tomorrow is her birthday. What do you think about, I don't know, doing something? What do you think about celebrating, wishing her happy, maybe providing for a birthday cake? The guy behind the counter said, yeah, you know, she's never really caused me any problems. That sounds like a good idea. So they decide to do that. And Tony says, How about this? I'll go get a card and I'll write happy birthday on there and I'll go get a cake and I'll be here at 2.30 in the morning. We'll be ready. And the guy who's behind the counter, he said, No, you know what? Let me let me provide the cake. That's kind of my thing. I, I run this place. Let me provide the cake. So they get all that ready. The next morning they're in at 2:30 in the morning, they're there, and sure enough, they sit there, they talk for a little bit, 3 a.m., these eight prostitutes walk in. And Tony holds up his sign. And together, Tony and the guy behind the counter, Harry, they sing Happy Birthday, Happy Birthday to Agnes. They bring out a cake. And she, even though her lips are trembling, she doesn't want to cry. So she says, thank you, and kind of looks down and, and trying to break the, the awkward silence. Harry says, hey, he gives her a, a knife. and says, why don't you cut the cake? So she starts to cut the cake and then pauses and looks down what seems like an eternity. She said, hey, if you don't mind can we not cut the cake tonight? She said. I just live two blocks down the road and I, I'd, I'd love to go show the cake to my mom. She kind of sits there. She's, she's obviously emotional, but she's trying everything she can do to hide it. And so they look at each other, Tony and here, they say, yeah, of course, yeah, go, go show the cake to your mom, absolutely. Do whatever you want with it. So they sit around for a little bit. Then she leaves. And afterwards, uh, it's kind of an awkward situation. They don't know exactly what to think of it. And so Pastor Tony says, hey, I'm going to pray for Agnes. He prays for her salvation, prays that God would reveal his love to her. Prays for what seems like a while, I guess, according to Harry. And so prays, and when he's done, Harry says almost angrily, he says, hey, you didn't tell me you were, you were a preacher. You didn't tell me you were a pastor. And Tony said, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor. He goes, what, what church are you part of? Tony couldn't really explain because he wasn't from Hawaii. He couldn't really think of how to explain. it. he said, he said, you know, I'm, I'm part of a church that, that, makes, that, that makes birthday cakes for prostitutes and celebrates them. Harry said, no, you're not. So what do you mean? He goes, there, there's no church like that. There's no church that cares about prostitutes. If there were a church like that, then that's the sort of church I would go to. We're in John's Gospel, and of course, we spent a long time in a, what, a different series. Now we're in, we're continuing John's Gospel, but it's it's by a different name. And what we're seeing is something fascinating about Jesus. We're seeing the sort, the type of person that Jesus ministers to, the type of person that Jesus loves. In fact, just in the last two chapters, we've seen Jesus minister to and care about the the, the highest of the high, and also the lowest of the low. Uh, there was Nicodemus just a few chapters ago. Nicodemus is this religious ruler, this respected person in the community, a teacher of the law that other people looked up to. Jesus ministered to him. And then right after that, almost immediately, Jesus spends his time with a Samaritan woman, the one who was despised, the one who had five previous husbands, the one who was an absolute outcast in society, lower than a prostitute. And then Jesus ministers, we saw last week, to this royal official who comes to him and says, look, my son is dying. Will you come to where we are and will you heal him? This was a guy who was not religious, but he was very well respected. And then this morning, again, Jesus is showing love to the absolute least of these. A lifelong diseased person. And what John, the evangelist, is showing us here, he's showing the nature of Christ's love. Who does he spend time with? Who does Jesus invest in? Who does he serve? All kinds of people, from the highest of the high in terms of socially speaking to the lowest of the low. Jesus is actually acting out John 3.16, and he's demonstrating the sort of love that God has for this broken world. And here's the way the passage unfolds this morning. We're going to see a question a command and a controversy. So a question, a command, and a controversy. Let's get into the text. John chapter 5. Let me, uh, we're going to cover verses 1 through 17. Let me begin by reading 1 through 7. The Word of God reads this way. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now this exchange took place during a feast uh, we 're not told exactly what feast it was, and it doesn 't really matter to be honest with you, but Jesus is at the temple where he seemed to be regularly and at the temple, there was a pool actually it was it was a rectangular pool that had a wall that divided it, made, it, made making it kind of what looking like two pools, but it had five, uh, it was a five sided pool called Bethesda, which had these five roofed porches until the late nineteenth late century. Uh, it was covered with layers and layers of debris and if you've ever been to jerusalem you you know there there's throughout history you've had rubble upon rubble and so um it was only discovered really in the late 19th century and and it was determined that this was in fact bethesda from john chapter 5. janine and i were in uh israel about a year and a half ago we had the chance to go see uh the remnants of bethesda that this very pool well, in that fairly small area in Jesus' day, it wasn't that expansive, there were a multitude of people, many people who were crippled, many people who were immobile, who were sick, diseased, paralyzed, blind, lame, etc. They would gather there hoping for a miracle. There was a popular belief, and it was actually more of a superstition, that, that an angel would come and with his fingers stir up the pool. And when this happened, the very first person into the pool would be healed of whatever remedy ailed them. And so you had all these people who were, who were lying around, and yet people who were paralyzed who had other people with them so that when the pool was stirred, they could be the first one lowered into it and they could be healed of their disease. What was probably happening, though, was that uh, something underground was causing the water to stir. But again, that, with this multitude of people waiting, Jesus singles out one man, and approaches him. Now, it's, it's important to note the man didn't come to Jesus. And this will make more sense in a, m- a minute. Jesus was after him. He wasn't after Jesus. The 16th century Spanish artist Pedro Orente imagines a scene like this. You can see the picture behind me. Well, you actually, you can't see that very well, can you? Um, well, Jesus is in there somewhere. And he's reaching down to uh, minister to <laughs> a man who is Paralyzed. And uh, he sees and he has compassion on this man. And so he's surrounded by other sick people. And then Jesus comes to him and he asks him the most bizarre question. He says, do you want to be healed? Now we read that and we say, why would he ask that? This man has been paralyzed. He's been sick for some 38 years. Now the lifespan, the average lifespan for an adult male at that time was not much longer than that. So we don't know how long this man has been in this predicament, but it's been probably his whole life or thereabouts. And so Jesus asks him this question. We say, it doesn't really make sense, does it? Why would he ask that? There are a lot of different explanations as to why Jesus would ask this question. But I think what Jesus is doing, he's establishing that the first step toward healing and wholeness is always an earnest desire for it. See, if we're going to experience healing, we have to be honest about the payoffs we get from the things we say we want to be free from. The sins that entangle us, whether it's lust, greed, laziness, anger, addiction, they do offer at least some short-term payoff. I heard a woman tell about her struggle with alcohol. This is a long time ago, and she said when she was drinking, she would often bemoan the fact that She would have these terrible hangovers and she couldn't keep a decent job. But the payoff was, according to her, she was able to live without responsibility. And when she did, when something happened, when she suffered the bad consequences of her bad decisions, she had a place to go for comfort, that was alcohol. So she was at least honest about the the payoff that she enjoyed while she was in this. Now it was a terribly unrewarding and self-destructive pattern in the long run But in the short run, it gave her a means of escape. And I know people like this, and, and I'm sure you probably do as well. They say they want to be healed. They're quick to tell you they want to be free, but they really don't. They're still delighting in the payoff of their predicament. They're always craving the attention of others through their helplessness. And as they do things that bring upon themselves consequences, they watch their life unravel, they actually relish the attention they get from others. They say they want to be healed, but they really don't. They're too proud to accept help from someone else. Again, they revel in being self-reliant even though it's killing them. What they're really denying is their inability to fix themselves. They're hell-bent on healing themselves, and I use that phrase for a reason. It leads to destruction. Now, here's our first point as we look at this question. The starting point for true healing, and you can really broaden this to any realm of life, is the recognition that we cannot heal ourselves. This is the starting point. Remember, Jesus says in Luke 5, I came not to call those who think they're righteous, I came to, to minister and to call those who know they're sinners. And the thing is, with, with, the way, with all the advances that we're experiencing in technology, with nanotechnology, which things get smaller and smaller and smaller and still function the same, with uh, the advent of AI, artificial intelligence that we talked about last week, with all of the advances in medicine, we are becoming or have become, uh, as, as, human, as humans, more self-reliant than ever before. Never has there been a greater sense of optimism. Never has there been a greater sense of independence. Never has there been more hope in humanity than there is now. And yet the reality is there are some things from which we cannot find healing on our own. The man at the pool says, in essence, of course I want to be healed. Yes, I want to be healed. I don't know how. I don't know what to do. Everything I've done has not worked. I've got no one to help me, no one to lower me into the pool. I'm hopeless and helpless, and now I've given up. And this is where Jesus meets him. This is where Jesus meets all of us, by the way, at least those who would receive him in our helplessness. We don't find God from running from our brokenness, but by meeting him in it. Now look at verses 8 through 12. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now remember that. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, I want to stop there because we've looked at the question, now the command. Now Two noteworthy things about this command. The first one is that Jesus simply tells the man to get up, and he doesn't ask the man to contribute at all to his own healing. He doesn't ask the man to get into the water. He doesn't ask the man to reach out to him. He doesn't ask the man to make amends for any wrongs that he's committed. He just heals the man. This is a picture of God's salvation of us. It's a subtle one, but it's very, very powerful. Jesus doesn't ask us to contribute at all. We are as paralyzed as this man was, at least when it comes to making our way to God. You ever heard someone say, I should get up and do something. I know I should do something, but I'm just too tired. I feel like my legs are paralyzed. This is where we are spiritually. The problem is not that we need to know what to do. We all know what to do. I should be kinder. I should be more patient. I should obey God. I should be more like Jesus. We know what we should do. The problem is that we don't know what to do. The problem is we don't have the power to do those things. Apart from Christ. We are paralyzed and enslaved to sin, spiritually dead, unless Jesus would intervene and speak a word of life to us. We are hopeless. On February 22nd, 1901, there was an iron-hulled, steam-powered ship called the City of Rio de Janeiro. That was the name of the vessel, and it was set, set sail from China to San Francisco, And it made it through most of the track. In fact, it had covered most of the 5,000 miles, making it through some turbulent water, some rough uh, sailing, and so on. And it was almost home. It was almost home. It was pulling, it was sailing into the San Francisco Bay. And all of a sudden, it hit a rock, which absolutely destroyed the vessel. Uh, There were 220 people on board of the ship. Uh, Two-thirds of those people were killed instantly because of the violent uh, crash. But the other third, there were many who were actually thrown into the water alive. Many strong men and women who were good swimmers tried to make their way to shore, but eventually succumbed to fatigue and drowned. There was a young American journalist who was also on the ship, coming back from a trip to China. He was so injured when the ship hit the rock that both of his legs were broken, and he was knocked unconscious. unconscious. And while he's in the air catapulted from the ship with two broken legs, unconscious. He hits the water, and the cold water instantly sort of stirs him back to life. Well, he knew he couldn't swim. His legs were broken. He's in tremendous pain. So what he decided to do was just kind of float. Lie back on his, on his back and float. This man had no ability to do anything. For hours, he just floated. Finally, he was drawn out of the water by a rescue party, party, others who had tried to make it on their own, others who thought, I can do this. I can do this. I have the strength. I have the ability. I'm, I'm in good health. I can do this. They all perished in the water. Now, there are few better pictures of God's salvation than this one. As people born into sin, we are helpless to save ourselves. Our wills, as Augustine would say in the 4th century, our wills are broken We cannot make our way to God. But Jesus speaks a word of life. And he heals us. We simply must believe in who he is and that he has the power to do it. Now, I said there were two noteworthy things about this command. The first noteworthy thing is that Jesus doesn't ask the guy to do anything. Now, the second one is equally powerful. But to me, it's fascinating and, and dare I say, scandalous. It's the fact that Jesus tells the man to take up his bed. Now, have you ever re- read that and wonder, like, why does Jesus care what he does with his bed? W- why does it matter to Jesus what he does? I mean, does he just want to make sure that he takes up his mat so he'll make room for someone else? Kind of like when you go to the neighborhood and all the, the, the chairs are taken by the pool, you know, you go to the pool and there's no one else there. Is Jesus just being thoughtful here? Why this command? Well, Jesus is stirring up more than just the water here. When does this miracle take place? It takes place, as we mentioned, on the Sabbath, verse 9. And there were a lot of rules on the Sabbath. A lot of things that the Jewish religious people said you cannot do on the Sabbath. And at the heart of that is you, can't, you couldn't work. Now, according to the Mishnah, which was the, the collection of the teaching of the elders, there were 39 different applications or 39 different ways that this work, you can't work, was applied. For example, you couldn't water a plant. Uh, You couldn't bake or cook anything. Uh, You couldn't write anything, even with your offhand. So if you're right-handed, you still couldn't write anything with your left hand. You couldn't even extinguish a flame, even if your house were on fire. That was considered work. And certainly, one of the things that was made very clear, as I'm going to show you just a second explicitly, is you couldn't carry anything on the Sabbath. A piece of parchment, a lamp, a dish, in fact, according to the Mishnah, very specifically, carrying empty beds is explicitly forbidden on the Sabbath, on Shabbat. Now, what does Jesus tell this man to do? He says, pick up your empty bed and carry it. This is an, ex- this is an explicit violation of the Sabbath. This is deliberate provocation by Jesus, hence the title of this message. One biblical scholar writes, the gospel records make unanimously clear that Jesus disliked something about the Sabbath practices observed in his time. Now the issue here is not that Jesus rejects the law. He doesn't. It's not even that he was ambivalent toward the Sabbath. He wasn't. What was going on here is Jesus was demonstrating very powerfully to the religious leaders, your, all your extra interpretations and extra biblical requirements are not going to weigh on me. I'm not going to pay attention to them. They're not going to be binding on me. And here's why. This is our second point. Legalism exhausts and divides. Jesus provides rest and unity. Now, let me explain. Legalism is the teaching that by keeping the rules, and it's, of course, an ever-increasing list of rules, we can actually gain favor with God. How does legalism exhaust? Well, it tells me that if I just obey God, If I can just obey God in all these constantly growing areas, then God will be pleased with me. God will receive me. I'll be right with God. But here's the thing. I try to obey the laws. I try to obey the rules. I try to keep all the standards, but I keep failing. I keep failing. And when that happens then, with every failure, I become more and more discouraged. Peace becomes more and more elusive to the point that I just give up. This is what legalism does. It exhausts. Now, I also said it divides. How does legalism divide? Well, it, it, it causes us to judge someone else according to our standards without loving them, without empathizing with them, without understanding them, without care about, caring about them. We just want them to start adhering to our personal convictions. Now, here's where this gets absolutely fascinating. Notice what the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders said to the man who had just been healed. The man has been paralyzed. Some have argued a paraplegic for 38 years. And what do the religious, what do the leaders say to him? Do they say, this is amazing. Like, how did this happen? How do you feel about, you, you have to be, feel amazing. about. This. How do you feel about this? What, what caused this to take place? This is a miracle. What's going through your mind? Like, what are you thinking right now? They don't say any of those things. They don't even ask who healed you. They say, who told you that you could take up your mat on the Sabbath? They don't care about this man. They don't rejoice with him. They don't, they don't celebrate with him. They're not concerned about him. All they care about is somebody has offended their religious sensibilities, somebody has violated their personal convictions. And they were so mad about it, as we're going to read in just a moment, they persecuted Jesus and they tried to kill him. Janine and I were sitting out on our back porch yesterday morning and the way that our houses are in our neighborhood, you, all the houses, there the, the, is kind of a circle, so in the back of each house kind of faces each other. And we're sitting there and we heard a neighbor, not directly behind us, but kind of diagonal, talking about theology. So I'm thinking, oh, this is interesting. So I kind of listened for a minute I, I couldn't hear well enough, so I went and put my ear to the fence. And uh, so we walked over there and I kind of leaned over the fence and said, hey, hey, we had never met these neighbors before. We said, Hey, just want to introduce ourselves. My name is John. Janine was behind me. This is Janine. And um, we said, Were you talking about theology? And um, they said, Yeah. They explained that what they're doing. They said, Why don't you guys come around and talk to us? So We walked around kind of the neighborhood, sat down with them on their back porch, and we started talking about theology and Jesus, and somehow we started talking about legalism and self-righteousness. And what I I said to them was, and you know, we we had a wonder, what a sweet family, wonderful conversation. And uh, what I said to them was, you know, I spent almost two years studying the the gospel of Matthew. This is a couple years ago. And I've been, we've been in John's gospel for, I don't know, four or five months, And one of the things that continues to blow my mind is the fact that Jesus confronts more than anything else, more than anything else, any other sin, he confronts legalism and self-righteousness more than anything else. And not only does he confront those things, he goes out of his way to be controversial in the way that he deals with those things. Think about this. Why did Jesus do most of his healing on the Sabbath? I mean, you read the Gospels, it seems like Jesus does his best work on the Sabbath. He heals a man who's got a withered hand. He heals a woman who has a disease. I mean, he he does all these healings on the Sabbath. This was very intentional by Jesus. This was not just sort of happenstance. Jesus is flaunting the religious hypocrisy to the legalists of his day. When you study the life of Christ, it is stunning how deliberately Jesus did things to provoke the legalists. He could have done his healing on any other day of the week and he did some healings on other days, but mostly it seems like he did it on the Sabbath as he did here. Now I say legalism exhausts and divides, but Jesus offers rest. How so? Well, Jesus obeyed all of God's laws completely so that his perfect record could actually become our record by faith so that we no longer have to obsess over our own performance and fret over our, our failures. Because Jesus was victorious for me on the cross, being raised again, it means that my own failures don't mean that I'm separated from God. My, my Even my catastrophic failures, my glorious and disastrous failures, don't mean that, mean that I don't have to be separated from God. God still loves me, my position with him never changes because of Christ, because Jesus was cursed. I am forgiven. Because Jesus was obedient, my disobedience need not condemn me. Because God's love for us is anchored in Christ's work for us, his life and his death, God's love for me never changes. If you are in Christ this morning, God's love for you is unchanging. On your very best days and on your very worst days, God loves you the same because of Jesus. Have you ever been in a relationship where you felt like you had to earn the other person's love, and if things didn't go well, you, you didn't know, okay do they does he still love me? I mean do, does she still love me? Have you ever been in a relationship where you, you, you're kind of walking on eggshells because you don't know about that person's love Well, is anything more exhausting than that? you can never rest because You don't know where you stand. As a friend of mine says, there is no security in a love that has to be earned. But it's not so with God's love. God's love is ours because He is loving. Not because we've earned it. God's love is ours because Christ secured it for us on the cross. Talk about rest. Jesus paid it all So I don't have to come up with anything else to give God in order that I might be declared righteous by him. Jesus paid it all. And that means that not only did he clear my debt, but he also supplied me with every good thing in Christ. It means I no longer have to live with the debtor's ethic. You know, I've got to kind of figure out how can I pay God back? I was at a basketball game, one of my sons, a couple years ago, and it was halftime, and... Uh, Chick-fil-A was was catering the, uh, or catering the game, and so I went up to get a Chick-fil-A sandwich. There was a guy who was sitting right behind me, and he was hobbled. He was an elderly gentleman who could barely move, and so I, I took a couple steps past him. And then I just I don't know. I just thought I, I would lean over and ask him if he wanted anything. I said, "Hey, I'm getting a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Do you, do you want one?" He paused for me. And he said, "Yeah, I'd I'd love one." So I went up to the concession stand. I got a couple of sandwiches and. Brought one back for for myself and for him. I gave him his. He goes, how much do I owe you? I said, oh, look, don't worry about it. And he said, no, really, how much do I owe you? I said, no, please, don't worry about it. It's a sandwich. This was like the third game of a 30-game season. Every single game, I saw that guy, he tried to pay me back. He couldn't stand it. Every time I saw him, he was trying to give me money for that sandwich. I said, look, don't worry about it. When we are in debt to someone, it, it hangs over us. It weighs on us. But Christ paid it all, so we're debt free. We don't owe God anything. Jesus has paid it all. We don't have to come up with what we're going to surrender to God that we may be loved. So Jesus provides rest. He also unifies. The gospel creates a culture where people are honest about their failures because, again, failure doesn't cost us everything. The gospel creates an environment where people repent to one another they say, you know what, I'm sorry, I blew it, please forgive me. Because we don't have to pretend to be perfect because Jesus was perfect for us, and that's enough. One pastor and author, Ray Ortland, says this The good news of acceptance in Christ alone creates a culture of emotionally secure, adaptable people. Conversely, trusting in ourselves that we are righteous and viewing others with contempt. Always go together. Those who know that they have contributed nothing to their salvation, they're humble. Those who understand that their righteousness is a gift are grateful. Those who know that their standing with God is secure in Christ are repentant. They're secure in God's love, so they love freely, which creates unity. All right, there's the question and the command. Let's look at the controversy, verses 13 through 17. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he, had, he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then look at verse 13, 17. You talk about being deliberately provocative They say, you can't work on the Sabbath. Jesus says, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I'm working. Don't don't tell me what I can do on the Sabbath. My father is working and I'm going to continue to work. But he he sees this guy again. He disappeared into the crowd. He would find the man again in the temple walking around and Jesus said, look, you've been made well. Now stop sinning so that something else, something worse doesn't happen to you. I have to be candid with you. This this is one of the most challenging statements that I've ever read by Jesus. And I read about eight or nine different interpretations of it. And there are a lot of different views on why Jesus would say, stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now you say, why does it matter so much? Well, it has huge implications on how we view our own, own suffering, doesn't it? Because if it sounds like Jesus is saying... The sickness that you've endured for 38 years is because of your sin, and if you keep sinning, something even worse is going to happen than what you've endured for almost four decades. Sounds like he's saying good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people, which is a lot more like karma than it is Christianity. And isn't one of the most important points of the book of Job that we should be very careful about concluding from our suffering that there's some sin behind it, if it doesn't God rebuke Job's friends for this? Now, I do think, and it's, it's important to note that God's discipline is an expression of his grace so that when we persist in sin, he will discipline us. And that discipline, even though it's an act of love, can seem severe. And so sometimes it, God's discipline may manifest itself in physical ailments, financial struggles, career struggles, Uh, relational and emotional anguish so absolutely but I don't believe that this is what Jesus is saying here I don't think he's saying to the man you've been paralyzed for 38 years because of sin and if you're not careful and you sin again in a certain way you'll have it way worse than you had it to begin with it just doesn't to me seem consistent with all the other teaching that I read from Jesus even in the same gospel chapter 9 where there's a blind man who's, who Jesus makes it very clear that he's not blind because of some specific sin, and he even rebukes those who suggest as much. So what, what is going on here? Again, and you can disagree with me. There's about, I read eight. There's another three or four. There's probably 11, 12 different interpretations of this. Here's what I think is going on. I don't think this man ever put his faith in Jesus. He started well with a recognition of his need, but he never put his hope in Jesus for a salvation. That would explain why, when the Jews asked him, who told you to take up your mat and walk, he immediately pointed out that it was Jesus who said this to him. Unlike the blind man in John 9, whom Jesus healed, and then he defended Jesus, this guy actually testifies against Jesus. Just like Eve did with the serpent and Adam did with Eve, there's a sense of accusation here. A New Testament scholar Frederick Bruner writes this, doesn't he know he is endangering his healer? It's hard to see complete innocence in his remark. I consider the man to be only half healed, physically, but not spiritually. And in case you're wondering, about half the people that I read believe this man followed Jesus and became a, a Christ follower. The other half would say that he didn't. But but here's the deal. The man already knew the hostility that the Jewish leaders had toward Jesus and even so, he informs them of Jesus' healing and really foreshadows, in my estimation, those who would later betray Jesus, those, as we're going to get to John chapter 6, where everybody turns away, and, Peter's, and Jesus says to Peter, well, are you going to lead me too? And Peter says that so powerful statement, well, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But many multitudes left Jesus at that point. See, Jesus is not telling this man, watch out, if you sin again, you might end up paralyzed by the pool again or even worse. What Jesus is warning this man of is hell. By sin no more, or literally stop sinning in verse 14, what Jesus is saying is stop not believing. Stop not trusting. Stop not putting your faith in me. Because he says, or a far worse fate than physical suffering awaits you, and that is total separation from God. In other words, it's not enough for us just to know that we're broken. This awareness must lead us to Christ and his complete healing. Here's our final point this morning. Recognizing our helplessness is not sufficient in itself. We must also embrace Christ as our only righteousness. See, most people are willing to say, well, of course. Of course I'm messed up. Of course I'm screwed up. Aren't we all? Of course I have issues. Don't we all? But it takes a work of God's Spirit for us to say, you know, I am broken and I am sinful and these are the specific ways that my sin manifests. And I know there's nothing good in me that I should sort of gain God's favor. The only way that I should be forgiven, the only way that I can ever be made right with God, the only way that I can spend eternity with God is from a righteousness that comes from outside of me, from a cleansing and a purifying and a forgiving that comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And maybe this morning you're in that category. You'll say, yeah, look, just like everybody else, of course, I've got problems. Of course, I don't always do it right. Of course, I'm messed up. But you've never come to the place where you said, yeah, you know what? Here's how I've rebelled against God and here's why I need forgiveness. Here's how I have violated God's perfect standard of the law and here's how I need Christ's complete healing. May God give us the grace not only to recognize our own brokenness, but to run to Christ for forgiveness and healing. Let's pray.